Hi everyone, this is Tom, and I'd like to dedicate the next series of Steeltown episodes to the memory of Chris Herbal. shape us are rarely acknowledged till the mold is distant and we are cooled. I understand the power of music and had seen its effect long before I knew its language. I knew that a man with a song could be as persuasive as one with a gun and was much less likely to harm innocent bystanders. As a child, I watched people whose traditions denied them any show of emotion pour out their hearts in song to those they shared a life with. The songs were their love, their longing, and caring made public. The music on this record grew out of those people, the alienated, the dispossessed, the exploited, the abused, the people we pass by, the people we are. The songs are very dark and dense, they come from hard times, fearful places. This is the sound of frustration, the words of the powerless. It is hard and brittle, cornered. Hope is replaced by fear, and dreams by survival. Most of us get by. Here is my home movie, my video diary, where I'm from, where I am. Out of lightness, dark, the circuit closes. Stuart Adamson, 1996. All right, everyone, welcome to episode 39 of the Great Divide podcast. And in case you were wondering after the last episode, we're, we're recording this before we even release the last episode, episode 38, so we don't know what the reaction would be. But uh, yes, obviously, that was not going to be our deep dive of Steeltown. This is going to be our deep dive of Steeltown. So as you might have guessed from the opening of the show, uh, get ready for a more serious affair for the next couple of episodes. We've had our fun the past two episodes. Now that we're going to really dive into Steeltown... We've got to get more serious, and we will. And, and certainly uh, the amazing words of Stuart Adamson that he wrote for the liner notes of Steeltown, uh, actually the original remix and re-release back in 96, sort of set the tone. So welcome to Svein from Norway, as usual. Hi. Hello. I'm here. I'm ready for a grim episode, as you mentioned. <laughs> we had our fun. Now it's serious and, and very, very, very serious indeed. Yeah. There might, yeah. there might be a laugh or two, but it, it'll be... No, but the, we are really apprehensive, I, I know, both of us, because this this is Steel Town, and we've been saying it for all these years. Uh, we'll work our way up to it, and I kind of knew that, you know, the time is going to come, and we're just going to sit there wondering how can we do this album justice. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> I guess we both just feel we really have to do this album justice. But on the other hand, I think everybody who listens knows what this album stands for. It's not like we need to <sighs> explain it away. We we just do what we do and see how it comes out. Yeah, that's exactly it. We'll do it the best we can and uh, hopefully not put too much 
pressure on ourselves, but I think the fact that we feel this pressure is really a testament to uh, how we feel about Steeltown, because I don't think we've felt this way about any of the albums that we've done so far, and it's kind of this big, uh, big feeling of you've got to do, as you say, justice to this album. So what, mm-hmm. what justice means, I don't know. We're just going to give our opinions of, of what we think of the album, but uh, we want to try to cover it, and I think what I said to Svein after we recorded the last episode is that if we can make everyone sick of Steel Town by the time all these episodes are done, we will have done our job. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> well, at least for them to say, you know what, I don't need to hear Steel Town for another few months at least. <laughs> yeah, I hope that we make people want to pick up Steel Town again and uh... – Maybe think of some of the profound things that I will say in these episodes. <laughs> yeah, let's let's hope let's hope it's not a load of cod swallop. <laughs> no, we, we 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 do our best. My favorite line from Swine in the last episode, by the way. <laughs> but um, right. but one thing I did want to mention before we really jump into the we we have a couple of things we want to talk about before we jump into the track by track thing, as as you would expect by our past long windedness. This won't be any different, but. There was something about Stewart's liner notes that were read at the beginning of the show, and we've read them many times before, we all have, but there was something that really struck me that really hadn't before, and that was a line that he wrote when he says, um, here is my home movie, my video diary, where I am from, where I am, and I thought that where I am was so interesting, and it never really hit me before, and it immediately made me think of something Mark Brzezicki said in in, the... <clears throat> the most cl- the recent classic rock interview from a year or so ago where he said that Stewart, he believed, left some ideas as to his mindset in things that he wrote, and it was only after the fact that Mark was able to go back and see, wow, I, I can see what he meant by that now. Or maybe he was leaving a little breadcrumb as to what he what his mindset was. And I almost feel that way when I read mm-hmm. that, where I am, because keep in mind that was written in 96 yeah. And um so it's and then he continues and of course the final words out of lightness dark the circle closes. And you couldn't get a much more uh bleak ending <laughs> to those words than that out of lightness dark. And I think that that kind of goes against what we've come to think of big country. Mostly when I think of big country I think out of darkness light. And I think we have to keep this in mind, as always, when we think of Steeltown, and we've talked about it in the past couple of episodes, that this is just an overwhelmingly bleak, dark album. And there might be a few glimmers of light in there, but they're they're very hard to find. And um, for a lot of us, that's what makes the album so great, which is maybe a commentary on some of us, too. I don't know, but um, mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that, as far as just the overwhelming gloom of, of this record? Well, he's not hiding it, is he? I no. mean, the, the, the songs are gloomy. The songs are downright depressing, some of them. They, because uh, it's not like they offer solutions. They describe situations. Yeah. And if the situations seem hopeless, then obviously the song will reflect that. And uh, the liner notes pretty much describe it. So be, behind some of the more anthemic choruses and uh, the signs on mountaintops, I guess, was the phrase from one of the reviews we read out loud last episode... There's uh, there's definitely more to it than uh, the factory is closing, or whatever Allentown uh, <laughs> right. song. It's, uh, right, it right. goes deeper than that. It's uh, it is a real situation, and the the line you read kind of shows that he identifies with it, and yeah. uh, he feels like he's part of the crowd that 
is hit by this, he, he, or he wants to be part of that crowd. So uh, I think it's a very personal album, and I think um, also as uh, I'll, I'll mention that a few times, some of the speak pipes had um, they, they were quite profound, and uh, I'm going to go back to Mark Dunwillows is that it is only part of the story, and uh, people might have different stories, but uh, nonetheless, it is a story, and it's uh, it's Stewart's story, and we're not going to treat it like an autobiographical piece of work here but it is a description of things that were happening so uh, i guess we'll see it's uh it's this and that and some things are darker than others we can say yes that's that's very true and um i, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention um we haven't done an episode that's solely devoted to the deluxe edition of steel town and normally we would do that, but we're doing so many Steel Town episodes that it just seems like our our opinion of the deluxe edition is sort of uh, peppered through all of these episodes rather than having one specific episode devoted solely to it. So mm-hmm. I think we would be remiss if we didn't at least talk just very briefly about some of the things about this uh, deluxe edition. And we'll, we'll talk in more detail about it as we go through the songs because there might be some opportunities yeah. to compare rough mixes with final mixes, etc. But... Uh, I, I'm I'm just thrilled with it personally. I, I think it's um, just an amazing uh, remix of the album. It's it's not a it's not a or I should say remaster because it's not a remix, but uh, it sounds better than any of the previous versions to me. And it's got more uh, more pop in the mix, I guess you could say. It, it sounds a little more um, pristine and clear. And it, obviously, the production and the muddiness and the overdubs are all still going to be there, and that's part of the charm of the album but there's something there's still a little more clarity about it for me and uh just as the other albums were are now going to be the definitive versions i think that i always go to when i listen to these these records um steel town the deluxe edition of steel town is going to be that too i i really was was thrilled with uh the quality of of this re-release mm. yeah definitely and um and thank you for bringing this up because this has been. Uh, what I want to talk about the deluxe edition. We didn't fit into the round table, didn't fit into the speak pipes, and now we're doing deep dive. But uh, since since you brought it up, <laughs> uh, obviously, what uh, what I like about this is what I liked about the other ones, which is the presentation, and that is where it has the big head and shoulders above all the others, with a fantastic booklet with yet again another really insightful forward by by Tim Barr. And a long one, a lengthy one with uh, great insights. Lots of stuff that I know neither of us had read anywhere else before. And uh, they managed to dug, dig up some really interesting things for disc two, bonus material. And uh, I think both of us mentioned the rough mixes as, as the, the real diamonds here, the things you want to go to. And uh, I, I think I mentioned it, the question before that you can only wonder how many more of these exist. And if this perhaps will satisfy our need for, for demos and uh, more, you know, naked takes of these songs. Right. So um, there, there's the odd thing about it. Like one thing for me, which is just totally wrong, is they put belief in the small man first and bass dance after, which <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what to think about that. that that's, that's obviously very, very wrong. And uh, you mentioned the, the crediting of bass dance and the bass concerto to Stuart, which... I think we we know is Tony <laughs> at this point. Right. Uh, they did have the correct website on this one. They had bigcountry.co.uk, yes. which was wrong on the other ones. And one thing I'm very happy about, which uh, we we read out, we, um, we read out loud Stuart's uh, 
introduction, of course, which is on this one and on the Seer, but not on the other two deluxe editions, which I, I thought was a horrible oversight. And uh, uh, at least we have it on this one. So, um, yeah, yeah. And I was less so up, uh, upset about that at, at the time when you mentioned it on the other ones. But now that I've looked at this one and just remembered how beautiful these words are, I think I'm coming closer now more towards yours, your uh, idea that it is a horrible oversight that should have yeah, been thank, immediately corrected. Thank you very much. <laughs> it upset me deeply that you didn't uh, think so. But, uh, <laughs> no, but they, they, they definitely should be there. And I, I can think of no reason why they wouldn't be there when you have them for two, but not the other two. But uh, so be it. I think the most important stuff will be the stuff on the actual discs. And uh, that's great stuff. And I guess on that note, we're getting closer to the deep dive. But I wanted to set the stage a little bit with uh, just a general timeline or what the band was doing at the time when this album was recorded. Which is very interesting because the album, the topics are very much of their time. And they wrote about stuff that was going on. So... Uh, so that's a kind of an interesting thing that we'll get into in specific songs. But uh, the thing to keep in mind here when the band went into Steeltown is they were well-established bona fide stars at the time. They had a fantastic tour behind them, a great successful tour for the crossing. And uh, so they went into this, they, they went to Sweden and the time after... Uh, East of Eden was released as the first single on September 21st, 1984. And it reached number 17 in the charts. And we'll talk about that when we get to that song. But this was actually the highest charting single from the album at, at 17. It's an so, amazingly uh, high chart position. But yes, we'll talk about that more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So they started the tour and they called it the Town and Country Tour on the 6th of October, playing a string of shows. So they actually started that tour a couple weeks before the album was released on the 19th of October. And uh, despite the feeling it didn't do that well, it actually got quite a lot of attention at the time from the press and the audience. And they were in magazines, the interviews were all over the place. And um, as we know, it charted at number one the first week of release before it sank. Uh, in Norway, it actually got to number 12. And in the US, it got to number 70. So... Once again, we have you beat. How about you, Tom? <laughs> 70. Wow. I, I thought it would have charted higher than 70. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I don't know what I thought, to be honest. It, it, you're led to believe it was such a failure that 70 seems good almost. But well, um, And back then, too, the charts were different. I mean, uh, yeah, they were. They, it, they, it they was really were. Probably getting 70 was an accomplishment, whereas today you sell 10,000 copies of an album and you're in the top 10. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, Where the Rosie Zone was the second single released on the 16th of November. That went to number 29 in England. There no record of it anywhere else. And Just a Shadow came out in January 85. That went to number 26 in England. So, that made it the second most popular, barely. Um, in December, it's worth noting that Big Country played Wembley again. And they had performed in Wembley in July 84, right before going to Sweden, with uh, Elton John as the headliner. We talked about that because that is captured on the BBC box set. Uh, but this time, the big country was, they, they were the sole headliners, and they sold out both the 13th and the 14th. So you could actually make the argument that this was big country at their absolute peak, popularity-wise. But for some reason, they, they seemed to be having that success more on the live front than uh, on for the recorded work. So 
that uh, they they were still very very popular but something happened that it didn't translate into album sales and i guess that's one thing we'll we'll also dive into yeah and uh i think we've talked about that to some degree already and i think it's no mm-hmm. secret why probably this happened but yeah that's a that's a good way to set things up and um as you say, as we get closer to our deep dive, just a couple more things I want to mention. <laughs> we we uh, we talked a little bit on the last episode, and we read a lot of the bad reviews that the band um, very very bravely and coolly, in my opinion, printed in a certain chemistry of Steel Town. And uh, I think uh, one of the things that I was trying to find in the last episode, and I couldn't quite find at the time, I've since been able to find, and that's a comment that Stewart gave in Country Club. At the time, Steel Town was released, and just after the East of Eden single had come out, and and I guess Steel Town had just come out, and it was getting mixed reviews, so, sort of, of the, in the same vein that we had read in the last episode. But the interviewer in Country Club asks him what he thinks about bad reviews, and I like Stewart's comments here, and it's kind of interesting. He says, I don't even bother my arse with them. I sort of get annoyed for a couple of minutes if anybody slags what we're doing. Then I just think, well, it makes no difference to us as people. It doesn't change the way I feel about the music we make. And the guy says, one or two reviews were not too kind. And Stewart says, they're crap. The thing is, it's painfully obvious we will never be hip in the music press. You mean you don't think you've got any acceptance at all? And Stewart says, there's only a certain few who like what we do. And I think that was a really interesting comment. There's only a certain few who like what we do. And he was saying that when the band was really, arguably, at its at its peak. I mean, obviously, they were about to come down from that peak, but they were, yeah. just, they were just about to have a number one album. And even then, Stewart had the foresight to understand. And this is something that I've said for years, too, because you get the constant argument about why wasn't Big Country as big as U2, and why weren't they this, and why weren't they that? Well... I think Stewart says it here. They just didn't appeal to the the masses of people out there. Their music just didn't do that. And Steel Town, I think, is the perfect example of that happening because, as I've said in the past, I think this is the album by Big Country where they had zero interference from record companies, from anyone. They were able to go into the studio and make exactly the record they wanted to make and felt like they wanted to make artistically. And I wasn't there. I can't say any of this for sure, but I get the feeling that that wasn't the case after Steel Town, especially after Steel Town didn't do nearly as well as The Crossing had done. Then you get the suits who are worried and saying, what's going wrong? What can we do to fix this? And then people like Dave Bates come in and try to do, try to fix what they think is quote unquote wrong. Whereas, for those few, those the few, the proud of us who are still here and love Steel Town and and revere it for what it is and the amazing piece of art it is, you know, to us there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's perfection, but you've always got that balancing act between commerce and art, and that's another one of the things that I love so much about Steel Town is mm-hmm. I've always sensed that this was the one album by them where there was no influence whatsoever from the commerce side. They just thought. Hey, they were they were so successful with the crossing. Let them do what they want to do for this album, and uh, so I think I just exactly. I just think that's a very telling comment from Stewart. And I think that's held true for the band throughout their existence. There's only a few who really like what we do, and that and that yeah. by the way is a commentary on the bad taste of society in, at large. So. <laughs> I blame society. <laughs> <laughs> Got a few comments from Stewart that I wanted to read that came out 
in that period, in the Steeltown period. And uh, really interesting, I think, setting the tone for what he thought about this album at the time it was released. And one of the things he says is, um, Steve Lillywhite gets a lot of shit, but I think he did brilliantly. I think it's one of the finest albums I've ever heard. I'll not be small about it. We think it's great, and we totally believe in it. And this comes from Alan Glenn's book, by the way, and I'm not sure uh, what where this interview was from because it's not referenced, at least not right in the pages. But um, I, I just think it's great to hear him say, I think it's one of the finest albums I've ever heard. And it's not just this is one of the finest albums we've ever done or this is a great album for us. He says it's one of the finest albums I've ever heard. And then he says, I'll not be small about it. And I, I love that quote because that uh, – it, it gets me excited, actually, because it, it seemed like as Big Country progressed over the years, they didn't talk about Steeltown much. They didn't play much from it. Um, a couple tracks here and there. And I always almost got the feeling that they looked at it as kind of a a turning point for them in a negative sense, commercially, you know. And I've I've mentioned already that I thought this was the height of their artistic freedom. And I think when Stewart says that, I think that's even more reflective of that fact that he's saying this is one of the finest albums I've ever heard. And he also says um, about the sound of the album, he says, we, we wanted it to be less melodic, a hard bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so there's your three word review of Steeltown from Stuart Adamson, a hard bastard, which I think is just about perfect. You could take that all kinds of directions. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that uh, what what you said was just what I was thinking. That what what he initially thought was something you didn't hear repeated a lot over the years, and mm-hmm. indeed it seemed that the fans always loved it more than the band eventually did. And that's just uh, how it was. And the fact that they're touring it now, playing it in its entirety, is uh, just a year ago I would never have bet money on it. Same here, definitely. So it's good to hear those comments from him in retrospect. Um, just you know, to show how much he really did love the album at the time it was made, and I think most of us felt that way when we heard it, and we still feel that way today. Mm. One thing I did want to do here um, is read the one really great review. I'm sure there are more than one, clearly, but Rolling Stone, uh, obviously a, a huge magazine, especially back then, gave Steeltown four stars. And I just want to read some of that review here because I think it's a very good review, and it, it's nice to... Uh, cleanse the palate a little bit from some of these imbeciles that we've heard from in the past episodes. So uh, let's see, who wrote this review? I'm trying to, I'm looking to see if there, there's actually no credit to it. So I don't know who wrote it, but it comes from Rolling Stone. And it says, Clanging and crackling with energy, the second album from Big Country rings natural evolutionary changes on the band's stirring twin guitar sound, even as it frames still better news. Band leader Stuart Adamson has rapidly matured into a songwriter capable of bringing a meticulous craft to his obvious passion. Adamson is the first to assert that his songs spring from a very personal brooding over Britain's ugly decades-deep malaise, and especially the hard times people have known in his hometown of Dunfermline, Scotland. Yet on the band's 1983 debut, The Crossing, generations gave way to epochs. Experience was heightened, poeticized, and forcibly made mythic. On Steeltown, Adamson stays closer to the literal surroundings of home. Thus, his wife, Sandra, becomes the girl with gray eyes, and his father, a one-time merchant mariner, is the man as bright and hard as the bloody edge of sword in Tall Ships Go. 
The strategy makes for an integrated group of songs infinitely more subtle than the Bolshevik poster art of the album's cover. <laughs> the locale of the title track is not Dunfermline, but a still more desolate town where the singer and his kin have migrated to work steel. The actual city, Adams Adamson has said, is Corby, England, where a mill and housing were thrown up and many Scotsmen brought into work for the six years the social economic experiment lasted. Over a characteristically terse, single-string riff, played on the team guitars of Adamson and Bruce Watson, the story unfolds in the songwriter's full-throated vocal. Here, as throughout, bassist Tony Butler's grainy-voiced harmony lends texture and heart. The mill is likened to the Grim Reaper, as well as to a landscape with a river of bodies flowing with the bell. Bleaker even than this tableau is the barrenness left by the mill's closing. The call of the steel is still there, but it represents a dream gone black, and now Dunfermline's sons and fathers have no prospect but life on the dole. Well, one prospect, the army. Where the Rose is Sown is not simply another anti-war song in a year chock-a-block with them. It's musically the most hard-charging and lyrically the center of an album full of angry, convincing st testaments. Adams Adamson strategically stacks up verses. On the left side, three beats of jingoistic command. On the right, four or more answering beats full of youthful worriment. Leave your work shears into, I just left school, and leave your home into, I am no fool. Adamson uses the device to great effect before he bays a mournful plea that combines both voices. If I die in a combat zone, box me up and ship me home. Drummer Mark Brzecki beats slow march time into the next song, Come Back to Me, a threnody in the voice of a dead soldier's girl. It's squarely in the folk ballad tradition, with the girl envisaging a life of pining for her lost lover as she raises her child. But her view of, returning war hero, of a returning war hero passing out cigars the day they had a party right out in the street fits into the album's bitterly modern outlook. Death will come like a reward, and one day I will lie down where the rose was flung. At points, such seriousness scrapes its head in portentousness. East of Eden was rebuffed for just that reason when released recently as a single in Britain, and Flame of the West, said by some to be spurred by President Reagan's visit to the, to the United Kingdom last year, is a portrait of a warrior demagogue that whacks away too bluntly to really hit home. But as the record moves into its second side, freshets of genuine excitement keep showing themselves. Watson and Adamson's Ebo-treated guitars, a magnetic device is held over a string to sustain the, the note, hopscotch across these tracks like fiddlers at a hoedown, and producer Steve Lillywhite's knack for layering instrumental sounds leaves ample room for Brzecki's joyful larupping of his drum kit. He and rhythm partner Tony Butler own, a range, own such a range of effects that they show up as the band's not-so-secret weapon in the spacious reach, reaches of Girl with Gray Eyes. But amidst the knee-buckling, rolly stonesy sway of the intro to Rain Dance, they're properly content to pummel. This is a band with anthems aplenty, but their next best asset, especially in concert, is their slam-danceable brand of the Highland Reel. Like Inwards and Angle Park, the latter from their Wonderland EP, Rain Dance is a drone, with Adamson huffing and hollering the melody right through the top of his head. Here, as elsewhere, Adamson's karate kick barks and bellows punctuate the song. If this is formula, it's a rich one, and the quivering sonic envelope doesn't let up with the great divide, a song some might reckon to be about factory hands, and some might read as a young man's extolment of the sexuality, the size and youth that frightened him in Rain Dance. <laughs> That's obviously Spine's interpretation. Adamson knows what's on the far side for some couples of desire. Just a Shadow portrays the hearthside hell brought on by wife-beating, and throughout the album he does a masterful job of linking personal and national frustrations. This is a group of songs that invokes hell three separate times and portrays a life dogged by violence, uselessness, fear, and loss. Sometimes, though, the blood that's running is inside lovers' veins, 
and seeds do grow in corners of this Stygian world. Beyond any analysis, Big Country is a group that has met the test of its second outing with a record that ends up exultant and healing by never forgetting to dance. Where will we find the newborn year, Adamson asks, in Ending Rain Dance, with a characteristic howl as the winter crashes down? So that's the end of this, uh, what I think is a great review of Steel Town. A very, little bit long. In fact, as you hear this, it might have been edited. We'll see. <laughs> but um, I, <laughs> I think that's a deep dive. Yeah, I think that's, it is too. As I was reading, incredible. I was like, yeah, as, as I was reading, I was like, man, this is a lot longer than I remembered. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, a case closed there. No, but this, this must have been written by someone who is familiar with the band because when you start throwing in our girl that Korea Isis about his wife, which by the way, he, her name is Sandra and this is his father who has so-and-so background and it's, it's not just a casual record reviewer. This is someone who knows about the band and I wouldn't be surprised if it's someone a little bit close to the band, but alas, the name um, escapes us, I guess, in, in your copy of this thing, but it, yeah. it, it must have been known who, who did it. Yeah. But uh, that, that, that's obviously a fantastic review and one of the few, sad to say. Are you ready to jump into this thing? Ready as I'll ever be. All right, excellent. Well, I do want to say one more thing. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> but, th- but this will be very brief. I just want to say because Adam, Adam Saltis uh, sort of stole my thunder a little bit on the last episode when he says that Wonderland he thought was a bridge between The Crossing and Steeltown. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that, but I would say the Wonderland EP was the bridge. And for me, when I was listening to All Fall Together not too long ago uh, on the Deluxe Edition, it really hit me that that song, and that song was the final song on the Wonderland EP, at least here in America. I know in some of your other versions there were there was like heart and soul attached to the end and that, that type of thing. But for here, All Fall Together was the final song be- that we heard that was new from Big Country before we heard Steel Town. And if you listen to All Fall Together, I think... What a complete, obvious foreshadowing. Not even a foreshadowing. It's more like a spoiler of what's to come. Because we've got this gigantic song full, full of overdubs with ominous, bleak, depressing lyrics. We've gone from the, the stuff from The Crossing and Wonderland to, to these lines. We will all fall together, a black sky in the rain, and you can laugh and I will sing. We've changed forever. Nothing to live for and nothing more left of your pride. Can you face all the black in your heart that will not be denied? And that, to me, when I look back on the catalog of the band, that, to me, totally sets the stage for Steel Town. And when you hear that outro of All Fall Together with the drums just going off and those marching huge drums, it's almost like something ominous is coming over the hill. And that thing is Steel Town.
Flame of the West. <laughs> yeah, so here here it comes. How how do you start? How do you start describing something like this? Uh, I guess I'm glad you're starting. Yeah. Well, it the only possible way to start is saying I, I think this is the best opening song on an album ever. And I think it's the best opening of an opening song in particular ever. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think one thing that every big country fan appreciates is how Tony is established as a force to be reckoned with on this album mm. from the very beginning. The first thing you hear is that bass intro, thundering away. And as many guitar flourishes as there are in this album, there's plenty of bass flourishes as well. And Tony, without question, stands tall. He's a giant on this album. And not that he didn't on The Crossing. And I guess the, the danger of of sort of upselling him so strongly here is that it sounds like the, it, he wasn't that good before. He was, but he's totally on fire here. And as is the band, I should say. But uh, yeah, so uh, suffice to say, I know that both of us will continue to mention Tony's contribution every so often as we go through this album. So this is the first thing you hear, the thundering bass riff, and you get the guitar with just the simple singular counter riff, and that stays there throughout the whole build-off and become punctuations when the band is firing on all cylinders together. Just stop for those counter, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. So the, the droning sound of the guitars just fading up and kicking it into the drums. And this is not how we're going to go through the entire album, describing everything that happens musically. But this is just so fucking good. It just hits the mark. I mean, what a high to start. And it's such an adrenaline surge. And especially when the bass lowers to play what the guitar lines play, because he keeps playing that lead bass line over it, but then he lowers down. And then you get the solar plexus. It. It's just... <laughs> and, and he's that, harmonizing that bass, too. There's like three yeah. different versions of it. Uh, yeah, I, I know it's been said there are three different basses on that intro as, as, as it goes in. Yeah. And um, I can't tell them all apart. I guess that's the, the curse and the blessing of the, this particular mix is it does blend together. But out of that comes um, not necessarily a whole bunch of individual parts, but a whole sound. The sound in total of all these parts but uh well i don't know this uh this is a fantastic intro it's the best intro that i think i can say without question is on an album that i have in my vast collection which is vast and huge and um as much as it is a fantastic song it's also part one of ten for me when this song is over, you never turn it off. You go to part two of ten. You go to part three of ten. Mm -hmm. so, so, so I guess what I'm saying is this song sets up the album in addition to being a fantastic song on its own right. So I think the iPod listening experience that more and more people have these days is very frustrating here. Because this song truly draws you in. This is an album. It's not just a song. It's an experience. And it starts here. And as fantastic as the starting point is you you don't want it to end and thanks to just the cohesiveness of the album it really never ends it just goes through different movements and that's that's the beauty of this album and i um i could wax poetically about this and i know i'm not doing a terrible good job here but this is just where the emotions kick in and you just you get so sucked in and so many people said it in the speak pipes too that this is a particularly memorable song just for the sheer energy and the sheer uh, i'm being sucked into this thing so um, uh, just this song 
versus the hit singles, quote unquote, on the album. Uh, I I have realized a long time ago, I don't really get the, the hit single concept because to me, a hit single is a song that makes your ear perk up when you hear it. It's something that snares you in and it's something you remember when it's over that sticks in your head and you want to hear it again. And this song does all the check marks to me and I'm not going to... Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, Me too. I, I think this... Um, it's similar to where the rose is sown on the level that both songs have that energy. Both songs have that quality of sucking you in. Where the rose is sown was a single. It didn't fare that much better, interestingly enough. But uh, I think the first single is very important. And if that fails, to some degree, that failure carries over. But uh, to me, this song checks all the boxes in terms of would it have been a good single? I think so. It, it really is. A, it snares you and you remember it. It's fantastic. It just kicks you in. But it's also very hard-edged. And I see that, for the most part, they opted for more melodic choices. But uh, I think this song has superior pulling power. So uh, the point about hit singles versus album tracks, where hit singles try to stand out and try to stand more on their own. I think this is an album that stands together, but some individual song quality does shine through. So uh, I think musically, I'll let you handle what whatever rest there is to say about that because uh, i think the lyrical themes is uh, just as interesting and perhaps perhaps it would have been a bit more controversial to have that be a bit more known back in the day because what the song is about is probably well known to most fans at this stage yeah. and the trigger to the song was reagan and his well publicized trip to ireland to quote unquote find his roots um during an election year, conveniently enough. <laughs> right. uh, so the song can definitely be about more than just Reagan's visit, and it probably is. But if we start there and look at the facts, and it's interesting how this timeline falls into Big Country's timeline, where Ronald Reagan visited Ireland between June 2nd and 5th, 1984, which places this visit and the discussion of that visit ahead of when it happened straight into the writing period for Steeltown. So we know they were scheduled to go to Stockholm in July when they were asked to take Paul Young's slot at the Wembley Stadium show, the Radio 1 Summer of 84 concert that uh, is chronicled on the BBC box set. So that show happened on June 30th, which... um, at that point, the band's equipment had already been shipped to Stockholm. So Flame of the West would likely have been written that month in June 84, right as Reagan's visit happened and before the band went to Stockholm. So before we go into more of that background, I want to touch on the naming of the song because I think the names, the titles of the songs on these albums, they are really good, all of them pretty much. And the Flame of the West is... Very evocative, yeah. very very fitting on, on many levels. And obviously there are many things it can mean and many places the title could have come from. Well, the whole uh, Lord so, of the Rings reference, as, as uh, Tim Eldred pointed out to us once on our, on our Facebook page. Yeah, so for Tim Eldred, we'll point out especially the Lord of the Rings reference <laughs> that uh, Narsil is a sword mentioned in uh, Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion. And that was the sword used to cut the one ring from Sauron's finger, which caused it to break. And the shards of the sword was kept in Rivendell and reforged into the sword Andruil, which is carried by Aragorn. And Andruin is an elven name, which translates to Flame of the West in the common tongue. Uh, so that um, that is one. But also there's another reference. Nerd where, alert. 
you say that now? <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I'm, I'm including myself because I'm sitting here nodding along with everything you're saying. Like, yes, 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 I cut the it, ring of Sauron. <laughs> cut the finger of Sauron. He said how. Oh, so, no yeah, I'm, I'm right yeah, along with you. Perhaps a more likely source for the title would be that Stuart has referenced older movies and TV shows in many other songs, notably Wildland in My Heart on Wide Long Face, but it's crept in here and there all the time. And one of the places where he might have heard of the title Flame of the West is from a movie from uh, 1945, uh, which is basically an old classic Western where John Poole plays a lawman turned into a peace-loving doctor who refuses to use force to tame the lawless elements of the town. And then you have John Lightnander, who is a newly appointed sheriff, who uses both his fists and guns to fight the gangs, but he's murdered in an ambush. And ultimately, the John Poole character is forced to turn to his guns to clean up the town, and he does it in style. So that's a typical movie from the 40s, 50s that uh, Stuart might have seen. And uh, I believe he sounds... probably did, because we've got a lot of those. Like, in a, like Big Country was the name of a movie, and East of Eden mm. was the name of a movie, The Longest Day. So I think you're onto something there. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, he's he's never made a secret that that's a big part of his upbringing and it fueled his imagination. So the title could have come from there. and uh, But it certainly fits because uh, it also goes into the traditional East-West themes where big country would, uh, they would revisit that much stronger on a, in a couple of albums time. But uh, you have this thing where the U.S. is seen as the Western superpower and the flame of the West, using flame as an allegory for perhaps a destructive force, possibly war, which is not a stretch given the Trident references in the song where UK were buying Tridents and uh, that, that was a big controversy ahead of the visit. So there's the war and the destruction of the West, which is again the bleak scenario, which Stuart opted for in this album. So uh, the title could have come from many places, but um, basically Reagan was visiting his ancestral home in Tipperary, where his family roots were explored. And interestingly enough, he would also say that this Irish trip was one of the most meaningful of his presidency. And you can wonder why what on the surface seemed like, strictly speaking, a personal trip, a family-based trip, why would that be such a success or a meaningful as, far, as part of a presidency? So obviously there was more to the trip than that. And he did meet with people, and there were political discussions happening. And a lot of people, uh, including Stuart, doubted Reagan's sincerity, as he never expressed any interest in his ancestry before he realized basically what a great photo op it would be, quote-unquote. Uh, and you had the starstruck reaction amongst the citizens of the Isles when they discovered he would come to their particular, very tiny, it must be said, town of Ballyporeen in Tipperary. So um, basically, as the song says, he said he'd lost his people and he'd come to look for more. So there was widespread protests. And I guess the reason I'm going deep into this, because we're not going to go super deep into into Reagan here, but it's worth pointing out that you had on several levels. You had a UK slash Irish dispute over a Northern Ireland. That was a very hot topic in the 80s, and as it was, had been in the 70s. And that was enough concern just right there, uh, enough concern in the UK government that they considered trying to stop Reagan's visit. But there was also a lot of noise about the US politics in Central America. And then you have references from Flame of the West to the dollars in his hand and trident for his spear. That's a quote from the song, which very likely refers to the UK Royal Navy's purchase and deployment of trident missile submarines. Yeah. So that was very controversial at the time. And the song also refers to 
Reagan as being a great communicator who hid evil behind the mask. So if you think about it, the song actually goes very far in painting a negative picture of Reagan as someone who will say just about the right thing to get his way, to get people to follow, but whose motives are definitely dubious and untrustworthy. So Stuart goes very far here. If you think about it, it's, it's hid a bit. But if, you, if you're going to take it at face value, he goes as far as warning people, look out for that stranger if you pass him on your way. He never sees a danger in the darkening of the day. So um, if we go to the quotes we have from Stuart, as far as expl- explaining the song, he has some very Reagan-specific ones. You find one in the Country Club magazine, number 8-9, that was a double issue, where he says, the song is about certain people in the West who hold power over the whole world. Uh, the way they use that power could be dangerous for all of us. Politically, I'm talking about XB movie actors, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which is not as veiled as perhaps, yeah, I don't think he tried to make it veiled. But um, uh, in People magazine... Well, the guy uh, even says in that interview, he says, not Ronald Reagan. And Stewart says, no, I never said that. <laughs> yeah, he never said <laughs> Incredible. That's, yeah, I didn't say that. Um, in, in People magazine from the next year, 1985... He says, Reagan has had 70-odd years to visit where his folks came from, but he chose to do it in an election year. I thought it was a bit of a cheap shot. So there he does mention Reagan. And, uh, but there's also a bit more broader definitions. So sometimes he played down the Reagan thing. And uh, in Faces magazine, 1984, he said, actually, it's just about Western politics in general. I think they're becoming much more right-wing and dictatorial, dictatorial no matter where you go. It's a shame. The needs of the everyday people are being completely ignored. And he followed it up with, uh, from Cream magazine, April 85, an examination of how right-wing and dictatorial Western politics are becoming, whether you're talking about Germany, Great Britain, or America, and how we're governed by big business and economic uh, consideration rather than caring for people. So that's obviously a topic he would visit from time to time. I, I think of Eastworld quite readily when I read that particular comment. Uh, but uh, in later years, uh, there's a comment from the Big Country official website bulletin board in June 1998, where he said, I think I wrote it about Britain's decision to buy Trident nukes from the US. So I think uh, it's probably uh, a lot of different things connected to the politics of what was going on at the time uh, that made it into the song. Uh, But there's no denying Reagan is a big part of it. But uh, just to counter the the bleakness, uh, I think it has to be mentioned that the Cold War was not just a phrase. It describes a very specific climate, which may be hard to really understand if you weren't there, and even hard to properly remember or put ourselves back into that mindset again for those who were there. So the U.S. versus Russia may have been the big one, but it was always a bit more complex than that. So you could say there were several large and small Cold Wars adding up to the complete picture, where you have the U.S. in Central America, you have the U.S. versus Soviets, and you have Ireland versus Britain. All of these got mixed up in each other during Reagan's visit. And to end it on a positive note, the more positive views will state that this particular visit, which uh, Reagan cited as the most important one, actually ended up contributing to the resolution of all these three items, where, on one hand, the Europeans encouraged slash pushed the U.S. to take uh, to go to the negotiation table for Central America. And also, following the re-election, Reagan 
began his uh, reapproachment with Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, started to change that relationship between their countries. And also, uh, in September 84, the president began nudging his closest ally, Margaret Thatcher, towards a rapprochement with the Irish Republic. So the relationship between these overlapping frames underlines the article claim that uh, these cold wars that were happening at the time, they're kind of a useful category of international relations. And the, it, it has been said that the seed to the resolution of all of these happened during that Irish visit. So uh, despite uh, the dollars in his hands and the trident for his spear and there will be hell to pay and all these things in the song, you could say it ended better than the, the, the bleak outlook uh, described in the song. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, that's a lot from me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a freaking <laughs> yeah, opus. And, uh, yeah, and I'm not really that politically inclined, but I'm very interested in um, sort of th- these kind of songs will, will make me uh, investigate what is the mindset behind it. Because the song deserves it, and uh, it's interesting also to note the 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 mood of the song, the, the ferociousness of the song versus what it is about. Uh, do you think the song is meant to be angry? Because I sense some, if not outright anger, then certainly strong resentment towards uh, what was going on. Oh yeah, it's an angry, angry song. Clearly, from the from the music to the lyrics to the uh, to the singing, everything. Um, but for me. And, and this is what I was getting to last time, too. I think there are so many ways to take this. I, I don't even – I recognize the Reagan reference, and I see it there, and I, I look at that as being uh, pertinent to the time it was written. But to me, that doesn't mean much anymore. When I think about the song, It's now it's more like a little footnote. Oh, he wrote that. It was influenced by Reagan, and it's interesting. For me, the great thing about the song is that these themes that he – puts forward puts forward here are universal and timeless themes and it doesn't have to be about reagan specifically and what he did you could find any world leader that you might really disagree with his policies and it doesn't even have to be on a on the grand scale of a world leader i take all of these lyrics and that's the one thing that i take from from all the lyrics on steel down especially i recognize a lot of the specific things that they were influenced by. But for me, the great meaning comes from the more abstract interpretation and, and the more malleable interpretation of these lyrics. I can apply them to, to so many different things. And there is, there's plenty to be angry about even today in the world, obviously probably more than ever today. And I think these lyrics of people who exploit others and try to, um, take things like fear and manipulate it to their own ends. Uh, They're still just as true today as they were back then when they were written. And whether it's about Reagan or anyone else, you can still see that truth uh, through the, through these lines. And this actually brings me to something that I wanted to to say to you earlier. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw this on you right now (laughs) to keep in mind for the rest of our deep dive discussion. So I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but I'll let you think about it for a minute while I continue to, to talk um, but I, I thought it would be funny, or not funny, I thought it would be interesting if, because we've talked about the lyrics of Steel Town as being sort of the watermark moment for Stewart as far as his lyric writing, I thought it would be interesting for us to pick our favorite lines from each song as we go through these albums, or, okay. or through these songs. So 
since we're talking about it, and you, you think about it. Now, for me, Flame of the West, for me, the, the line that stands out and I, I just love is, look out for that stranger as you pass him on your way. He never sees the danger in the darkening of the day. There will be dollars in his hand. He has all hell to pay, and he will pass them to you if you promise you will stay. Just saying those lines, I'm, I'm, I'm literally racked by chills right now. <laughs> it's like, they're, they're just incredible, incredible lyrics. And sort of what I said in, um, in All Fall Together, it's just kind of this, just this punch to the gut when you read that. It's just like, wow, those are incredible lines. And it still boggles my mind that a 24-year-old could write those. And um, we'll be saying that throughout the, the course of this album when it comes to the lyrics. But... Yeah, those lyrics to me sum up the point of this song. Look out for that stranger. To me, it's not Reagan anymore. It's it's just that stranger, that stranger that can take any form. It's almost like the form of Sauron. If we're going to go back to the Flame of the West reference, Sauron could take many forms. He can take many forms in, in different people even. You, you could uh, look at it that way. And there's always that stranger that's out there in the world, whether it's in your day-to-day life or in or on the the vast landscape of politics, world politics, there's always that person who never is concerned about the things that are happening beneath the surface, the really important things, but are but are only throwing out things like dollars and whatever else they need to throw out there to, to get your attention, to get your cheap attention, to take that attention away from the real problems that are happening. And I love the line especially, he has all hell to pay. Just incredible lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um so anyway, think about what might be your favorite line in Flame of the West and keep that in mind for the rest of these songs too. And uh, I'll get back to you on that in a minute. But I don't have anything to add <laughs> to, your, uh, to your dissection of the song from a political standpoint um, at all. But uh, that, was, that was very interesting, actually. Uh, but as you said, musically, I'll take a little bit of the music. Um, and again, not a whole lot to add to that either. We've already talked about the bass. And as you say, I think the fact that this song begins with the bass is a perfect... Is perfect because Tony is arguably the the star of this album, and that's not to take away anything from any of the other amazing performances on this album. But the bass is really phenomenal throughout this album, and it's 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 more than the backbone of the album as as bass often is. It's also sort of the veins and tendrils that that weave their way through the album. It's not content to just sit there and be the backbone. It wants to be. Also, the brains and the arms and the legs at times uh, throughout this album, and that's the incredible thing about uh, about the bass. And I tell you what, hats off to Derek Forbes for for learning these parts and pulling these parts out because I think from the clips that I've seen, he's doing a great job. And even um, he, he's even using a harmonizer pedal on Flame of the West when he plays it live so that he can get some of those harmonizing bass parts I've noticed, which is very cool. And I, as a fan, I really appreciate that attention to detail because Derek Forbes is an incredibly revered bassist. In fact, in the liner notes of that deluxe edition, Steve Lillywhite says that Mark Brzecki and Tony Butler are the most gifted rhythm section he ever worked with. And then he adds, with the possible exception of Mel Gaynor and Derek Forbes from Simple Minds. So that tells you right there the the esteem that Derek Forbes has held in as a bassist and um, for Steve Lillywhite to say that. And so obviously for him, he's picking up someone else's parts here, but he's doing them great justice. So just a little aside there, hats off to Derek Forbes. I don't, I don't think anyone else could have could have pulled off these parts um, 
the way Derek has has been able to do it. I don't think any other basis would have been capable. I mean, the, the the actual thought of just going through and learning all these parts is so daunting to me from a guitar point of view, especially, but then from a bass point of view too, because there's so much happening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you, if you listen to this album especially, and this is something I want to stress to keep in mind for this album as we talk about the whole thing, but if anyone has not done it, I would really, really encourage you to put some headphones on, sit in a in a dark room, preferably in the evening or at night, and listen to this album in its entirety in headphones. Because if you listen to this in headphones, you will pick up some things, I guarantee you, that you would not pick up just listening to it uh, on a stereo or in a car. I, I I did this recently in preparation for this podcast, and I'm still just blown away by the things that I hear, just little little parts uh, that you may not have picked up on before or may have forgotten. There's so much going on. But on this remix especially, I really think that some of these parts are, have been a little bit more isolated and made a little more clear than before. And in in Flame of the West especially, you've got these this great you've got these great guitar parts going on. They're panned left and right. And there's a rhythm part that Stewart is playing throughout the verses. It's very intricate. And you can really tell how intricate it is when you listen in headphones. But man, would I love to hear that track isolated so that I could hear exactly what he's doing because just that one track, that rhythm part, and maybe Bruce is playing it. I don't know who's playing it. It could be Stuart or Bruce, but it's kind of on the lower strings and it's got this movement to it. And it gets back to the whole thing. It's, the big country was never one to just sit back and play bar chords and, and the traditional thick chords. They had all this stuff happening. And they've got it going on in, from the outset in Flame of the West. Um, one one of the, the major portions of this musically that I always like to come back to is the bridge of this song. It's just how it's always been One man with a ruling dream And everyone falls with him Heroines in an ancient film That, to me is an absolute masterpiece within a masterpiece. That bridge, both musically and lyrically, is just incredible. And I'm going to run out of adjectives quickly as we go through all of this. But <laughs> that bridge is just, it's so great. And lyrically, it's great, too. It, lyrically, it's just as good as it is musically. But musically, it is so awesome. I love how the 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 pace of the song sort of slows down a little bit as that bridge comes and we're not getting into we're not doing the racing charging horse type of thing that the song is established from the beginning now it's kind of slowing down briefly mark is sort of playing half beat type of thing there and mm-hmm. Stuart is you get some chords that are sort of uh strummed and left to reverberate perfectly framing Stuart's lyrics there and then like the second part of the bridge Mark picks it up a little bit. He gets into the staccato, staccato-y part of the drumming, and Stuart picks it up a little bit. He sings the same thing, but now he's singing it at a higher pitch, a higher range. And Tony is doing something on the bass there that I have no idea what he's thinking as far as the chord progression because he's playing this weird bass pattern that really doesn't lend itself to... It made it it made it hard for me when I was trying to figure out this song to figure out exactly what the chords were that were playing that were being played there, 
but he does this great thing on the bass, like you know, do 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 do, and I don't I don't know what the exact <laughs> exact chords are, but they just it just works so well, and it's so worlds away from what most bands were capable of doing at the time. It's very interesting because they totally switch gears. Yeah, they do, and uh, and not just lyrically, but also musically. So the song is fierce and it's powerful and just uh, ferocious, and then they come to that point. And they slow down, and it's kind of like Stuart is more reflective, which goes into the the question you asked me about lyrics, because the lyrics on this song are probably the most straightforward on the entire album. It's basically, you start with, a stranger came by traveling, he went to every door. He said, he's lost his people, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's very straight. It's a storytelling, basic things, this is what happened, he came here, he did this, he said that. And then it becomes reflective and said, it's always like that. Yeah, and then finally in the last verse, it's uh, it's the warning: look out, blah blah blah. Right. So so that that middle section, how it totally switches gear, is a testament to their uniqueness. And um, uh, you can call it, you know, I, I don't mean it in a demeaning way. That the lyrics are more straightforward. I think they are fantastic, yeah. and they really tell a story very strongly. He wanted to be clear, and he could write clear lyrics. And I know that was a criticism from many people as uh, as they got into their career career a bit that the lyrics became more basic and more straightforward uh it he did it back here and to great effect so i guess the simpleness is not necessarily the, the indication of of how great they can be but obviously this is an exception and uh if you look to just just one song ahead we don't need to look far where he writes stuff like i watched the way the sun sets until the night's inside you immediately much more poetic much more abstract you don't find that in flame of the west mm. so uh, so that middle section is very interesting yeah it is and, and it, it kind of gets back to to my whole thing about how the, this may have been inspired by a certain person but it can be applied to anyone and that it's just how it's always been mm. perfectly sums that up and then he, yeah. he frames that and then when he says look out for that stranger that's what i'm thinking that that eternal stranger not not reagan but that eternal stranger who who fits the bill for what the kind of person that he's he's uh trying to describe here in the lyrics but um last thing i'll say about it is that i i always got the feeling this song interestingly enough because of the title had a had a similar feel to like an american old west type of song it's got kind of that old west feel to it with the with the um guitar tone and and just the chord progression itself you could almost hear this played out on the prairie with an acoustic guitar yeah, some old cowboy sitting by a fire and singing, Look out for that stranger as he passes him on your way. <laughs> Yeehaw! Oh, p- p- please don't. <laughs> Shut Okay, so I told you mine. What's your favorite lyric from this song? Yeah, you kind of... Um, the, the warning at the end is, is very strong, to look out for that stranger. So that, that would be one that resonates because... Uh, and it's okay if we agree and pick the same one. Yeah, but the, it's 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 very interesting because the he starts by basically telling a story, and uh, he reflects over the course of the bridge. But the thing that gets me for that particular verse is he turns to the listener, and he stares you in the eye, and he says, "Look out for that stranger," and he's now talking directly, whereas more he was telling a story to a crowd. So that's that always just grabbed me that way, and that uh, that cements that bit a bit for me. So that was that was quite a lot from Tom on uh, Flame of the West. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from Tom. So how do you rank this masterpiece? 
Uh, well, for me, um, and we've said this about other albums in the past, but I feel like I just need to say this dis- disclaimer first. It, there's going to be a number 10 on this ranking. There's going to be a number one. But really, the, the distance between 10 and one is very small. Uh, I love all the songs on this album for different reasons. But for me, Flame of the West comes in at number four. Yeah, so it's definitely in the upper half for for whatever that is worth. So, yeah. so for me, uh, I would say that there is a little bit of a distance between one and ten. But the difference is the smallest it will ever be on a big country album number one and ten which i would take number one all the time you know there's not even like the form of the day that will make me veer to number 10 ahead of number one but they are close i don't skip a single song so um with that in mind flame of the west is definitely one of my favorites and i rank it number two very cool some days it may be number one but overall no i think number two is is correct are we done? I think we're all drained. We're here. done. This is this is this, this is Flame of the West. All right, good. So we go into the second track, East of Eden. All right, now this track is very interesting for a lot of reasons. Probably first and foremost, that it was the first single from the album, which I find kind of mind-boggling, really. (laughs) But uh, if you read the liner notes of the deluxe edition, Steve Lillywhite says that he really loved the groove of the song and he immediately thought it would be a good single. And um, I just, I find that so odd. I, I mean... On one hand, I, I find it incredibly brave and incredibly um, noteworthy and, and something to praise the band over because who would release a single like this, it, especially in that time period? Um, it's such a hard, it's, it's such a hard bastard. <laughs> it's such a hard song. The lyrics are, are, are really indicative of Steel Town as a whole, really. It's, it's a very down, depressing song. And musically, it's it's probably for me anyway. It's probably the most brittle, uh, difficult songs on the album to really to really take in from a musical perspective. I mean, there's just so much going on, and I'll get into that in a second. But I think uh, one thing interesting about the title that I really think sets the tone of the song is I, I don't know exactly if this is where Stewart got this idea, but I'm assuming he did. I mean, there was a John Steinbeck novel called East of Eden. I have not read it, uh, so I cannot comment on the similarities between that and this song. But the term East of Eden, the phrase East of Eden actually comes from the Bible, and it comes from the story of Cain and Abel. If you're familiar with that story, Cain kills his brother Abel, and after he's punished for this, there's a Bible verse that says, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So uh, God basically kicks Cain out of the Garden of Eden type of setting that they were living in. And uh, he settles in a land that they say is east of Eden. So in a way, you can take this east of Eden as being somewhere away from God, away from 
not necessarily God, but just away from what's good, away from something that's wholesome. And so I, I think that really sets the tone for this song. Um, some of the most amazing lyrics, I think, on the album can be found in this song. Um, and I think probably we've talked about one of them already, but I think just that first verse I feel the way the wind blows. It tells me where you've been through. I watch the way the sun sets until the night is inside of you or until the night's inside you. And what a powerful couple, few lines that is. And, and, and it doesn't really let up throughout the song. And just that whole, that line in, in particular, I watch the way the sun sets until the night's inside you. It's so ominous. It's so foreboding. And this idea of night being inside someone, you get that feeling of, just depression and and hopelessness and sadness and it really ties into the themes of this album so we get back to the idea of this being a a single choice and it not not necessarily that just because a song is depressing that it can't be a good single that's not the case at all but i think when you throw in just the the hardness of this song musically with those lyrics and this is one of those songs on the album where I do feel, and I love this song, I really do, but I do feel like this is one of the songs that suffers from the production. And this is one of the songs that I can kind of understand what Steve Lillywhite was saying in the liner notes when he says, where are the guitar parts? Where are the guitar riffs? Now, there are plenty of guitars throughout the album, but I think what he was saying there is where are the big, meaty, chunky riffs that you can... Uh, you, that you know, you can memorize, that you can that are that have hooks in them, mm-hmm. and um, you don't really have anything like that in East of Eden. You've got that opening part, which is uh, a very cool part, um, very immediately recognizable uh, openings, um, similar to Flame of the West. I mean, it's not like a a forceful, fiery opening like Flame of the West, but it's still a very cool, rough, uh, yeah, very just, ominous. I think. Yeah, it is. That's exactly. It's an incredibly ominous opening. And and you know that when you get to the second song after Flame of the West that you get the feeling that this that's what this album is going to be. But aside from that that opening part, there's really nothing else in the song guitar-wise that really for me stands out and and is something you can really hang your hat on, I guess you could say. Um and it's hard for me to to really put forward what I mean here and it's not like I'm criticizing the song because I love the song and the way it's constructed really is perfect for in a lot of ways for the way the whole album is constructed that whole guitar symphony thing that I've talked about but in a way sometimes I've heard them do this live where they will have kind of like uh, meteor bar chords going on in the background of the chorus and that type of thing because and I think that helps because if you listen to the to the song and especially in the chorus, there's like a lead part that's playing throughout the chorus. And there really isn't any kind of feeling of, of just like big chords that are going there that kind of are holding down the fort musically, if you know what I mean. Um, and I kind of almost want that to be there. I, I feel like that would make it almost a more powerful song musically. Um, so I, I think it's just from a single perspective, I think it was... It just really fascinates me, I guess, if, if you can't tell already. It just fascinates me that someone would think this was a single choice. And I'm not necessarily criticizing either. I'm just like, wow, they really 
really thought this was a single choice. It's interesting. I wonder what went through their mind. And I kind of come back to the whole idea of, once again, we've got the band at the height of their artistic freedom. There was nobody telling them, you can't release this. This isn't going to work. The people were saying, behind the scenes were saying, well, this is a big band. They're on the cusp of being even bigger. Um, they can do what they want. We're going to trust them until they show that they don't uh, deliver commercially. And I think probably Stewart really wanted to release the song maybe too, or he was convinced because it was such a different song for big country. And in a way, lyrically, it is kind of, um, in some ways you could say it is kind of the focal point of the album um, in many respects, even more than the title track, I think, just just from the the lyrics and the overall feel of it. But I don't think it's any surprise or really should come as any surprise that the single was met with mixed reviews from the casual public and uh, maybe not even mixed in some cases and it just didn't catch on. Um, and I guess that kind of set the tone almost for the way the album was going was gonna to go. Um, but beyond that, I mean, there are so many great things about the song musically as well as lyrically, which I won't get into the lyrics too much because we've already talked about a lot of them. Um, probably one of the most quoted Stuart lyrics in the whole big country catalog, which is some days will stay a thousand years, some pass like the flash of a spark. Who knows where all our days go? People quote that often, and um, it's a great line. Uh, but one thing that, that does pop up here musically that I think is really interesting and, and kind of happens throughout many of these songs is that there's a, an, interesting, an interesting juxtaposition of minor chords in the verse and then major chords in the choruses. And I really like that. The, the, the verses are very, as you say, ominous and, uh, and dark, and it's in a minor key. But then when we get into, I was waiting, I was watching, it, it goes into a major key. I always love that in songs when they when they go back and forth like that and they go back to the major or to the minor key in the verses and then go back to the major key. Um, some incredible playing on this on this song, and that's going to be a common theme throughout every song that we talk about here. But once again, we've got just amazing bass from Tony. Um, in fact, there's a there's a bass run that he does right after right after the line outside the thunder gathers. And it's such a great little line. It's a do 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 do. Outside the thunder gathers, why care some other cool things about it. There are a lot of great backup vocals, I think, on this song. In fact, if you listen in headphones, you can really hear some nice three-part harmony going on in the choruses. It, they don't. Steve Lillywhite doesn't bring it up too much, but if you listen through those headphones, you can hear it happening, and I think that's that's cool to hear on the song. Um, so. It's hard to be critical of something when you know that someone did what they wanted to do and this is their vision for the song. And the only, the only criticisms, criticisms I would have of it are from the vantage point of commercial uh, success mm -hmm. since it was released as a single. And I don't even like to think from, those, from that perspective. So the, the way they did it is the way they wanted to do it and you have to respect that. But for me, I think it's one of the more difficult songs musically to really 
come to grips with and embrace. It's a song that I will listen to often, but it's a song that I'll skip sometimes as well. And I think that's what brought it down on my list when I started to think about mm-hmm. the rankings. So, a yeah, beautiful song. Stewart at the top of his game lyrically. I almost wish that the music had been a little meatier in places and not necessarily relying so much on the on really what it seems like just the lead playing throughout. I would like to hear some almost hear some big power chords in there at, in places. But uh yeah, you know, what can you say? It's 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 a great piece of work. No, it definitely is. And I, I am just super fascinated in hearing you talk about it because it's almost like you stole my notes. <laughs> uh, and uh, I know Kenny said, I look forward to the great disagreement. You're not going to get that for East of Eden uh, <laughs> if you get it anywhere, because we, 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 we think alike on, I think, most respects for this song. Uh, so uh, I think um, the liner notes kind of revealed, like you said, that perhaps it's uh, Steve Lillivite's fault, quote unquote, that this was picked as a single. Certainly he seemed to support that notion and how much convincing he needed to do isn't clear, but... Uh, uh, they, they went for it, and uh, they picked it as a single, and therefore you need to think of it in a bit of those terms. Now, I, I probably don't because uh, I started locating the actual singles in the 90s. <laughs> so it's not like this song made or break, uh, was, <coughs> made or broke the album. No, that's when you, physically locating places that could supply them. You couldn't find this in Norway. You need to order it from England through retail or someone that, that could supply it. Yeah, so, I, exactly. so, I, so it was just a collector's thing. But this is a brooding song. And uh, I think from the first couple of guitar lines and pretty much throughout, you have this sort of ominous feel. And it's kind of strange how I feel about this song because this is also quite low on my list. It's a song that works in some respects, but don't quite work in other respects. And it, it's kind of strange because I like the ominous songs. I like the songs where you have the something is coming or something is happening feeling. And this is one of the few on this album that probably retains that from The Crossing, which had quite a few of them. And that uh, also later albums would have more of it than perhaps Steel Town. So mm. when they finally have it here, and it's not the song I latch on to, that's kind of interesting. Um, but I'll, I'll look at the lyrics first. I think this is the most mythical and mysterious words we have on this album. Probably a lot of them are more direct. This is probably the most crossing-like lyric we have here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously for the longest time I didn't have the foggiest idea what he was singing about, what the song is about. But uh, over the time, o- uh, over years, I see it more as a waiting song. This is a song from the point of view of someone who is stuck in a deadened situation. So the person is waiting for something to happen. So the lyrics will say he doesn't know where he's going, he doesn't know his way out of the situation, and really there's no apparent way out unless something happens. So he's waiting for this something. And some days are easier than others, some are hard. You do the best you can, but you're still waiting. So the, the fascinating thing is, this is a passive kind of waiting. This person is not proactive, likely because of the feeling that he's not in a position where he can do anything. Maybe it's not bad enough. And that's an interesting position. It's bad, but it's not bad enough. Because once it is bad enough, then desperation will kick in and you actually do something. So this is more of a humdrum situation, I think. Uh, 
you're stuck, you're watching, you're waiting. Would it ever be there? Will something happen? And uh, you, you cling to that hope and that lucky card. Will you be able to play that lucky card? So there's um, there's all sorts of card, stuff. That lucky card thing, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but that lucky card thing was always something that interested me. I, I never quite could understand exactly what that referred to. But, uh, yeah, that's interesting that you say play that lucky card. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I think in in the context of waiting and waiting for something to happen, waiting for a break, and it doesn't seem like it's hopeful. But again, it's not bad enough, so you keep waiting. And uh, like this person says, there's there's really a bad situation all around. And this the, these lines: I looked west in search of freedom, and I saw slavery. I looked east in search of answers, and I saw misery. So which way to go you know there's uh, bad situations all around you maybe right where you are sometimes uh, it's uh, it's the least bad that you can see it's not a good situation but you keep waiting for that opportunity so that's east of eden to me uh what i'm gleaning from this song so it is a waiting song and it is a song about hoping that something better will come along so uh, perhaps if you look at it in terms of the coming song steel town where the shit has hit the fan more and more the hope is gone you haven't quite reached that point for east of eden perhaps perhaps you're one step before that happens or hopefully that step won't happen but that's uh that's where i see this song in relation to that other song and i actually have some quotes from Stuart about east of eden where he said a couple of things uh in melody maker in 1984 where he said uh, it's just basically an idea the idea of people searching for something better when they're in a bad situation. The only better things that can come are from other people. We made a video for it, and we took one example. We made it like a Scottish family, the father's drunk, the mother cares about everything, the son has to go to the shipyards, and then he gets a letter saying that his father died and he has to go home and look after his mom. People get trapped into situations. I've seen it happen. So that was very, uh, very interesting to me, and I, mm, yeah. I, w- I wish I had seen that when we discussed the video because we we kept talking about what's what's the mother, what's the father, and stuff, and uh, then people right. get trapped into situations, and that's exactly, I guess, what he wrote this song about. Uh, I also have a quote from uh, the Number One magazine in '84 as well, and he says it's a questioning song, a song about always having to look for any hope or inspiration. And then further, Stuart says he wrote the song as a result of living alongside the unemployment and anger in dockyards and factories. Wow. So um, it uh, it comes from very real situations, but still, the words or the writing about it is abstract enough that uh, you can ponder these words and wonder what it's about. But I think if you look between the lines and especially the wider context of the album you you get an idea what it's uh, about so once again uh, the title of the song uh, i think you know east of eden like flame of the west and like other titles later in the album this is one where he could have been inspired by books or movies so you mentioned the john steinbeck novel we also have the the movie starring james dean based on that novel yeah and uh so he might have seen that when he was young and and picked that and that that title certainly would describe that type of situation where you are in in a place where it's it's not a good place and you're kind of hoping to get out of it and to somewhere better so that's uh that's the words I think uh, beat that horse to death I think for the music you covered most of it I think uh, what primarily the song is lacking to me is 
uh, as a single it doesn't have a hummable and strong melody and no. uh, and I would even say that the chorus uh, as much as you like the the changes from minor to major I, I do too but I think the chorus is a little too weak I think the verses are definitely the stronger part of the song and then you come to the chorus and what you have is basically <laughs> it's not really hummable it's not something that you would put out there on MTV in 1984 so you need to have those hooks and get people to get it in their head. I think when this song is over, for the most part, people forgot about it because it was too complex. It was hard to digest and you needed to really be into it. So it wouldn't work for the radio. It wouldn't work for, for MTV. It and I don't even know if it was released as a single in the U.S. because it was certainly not the... I think Where the Roses Zone was the first single here, mm. which makes more sense. Yeah. But... um yeah, so I didn't even know it was the first single from this album until many years later. Right, and uh, it was the, the highest charting single in England, which uh, I, I think I mentioned this before, that I think to some degree the success of an album or a single is always kind of dependent on the previous album or single. Yes, so definitely. If, so if you, if you have a very strong following and a strong last single, the next single will benefit from it. And I think yep. East of Eden probably benefited from that since it got a little boost and even with that it only got to i think was it 27 or something in uh, in england it 17 in uh, in england yeah that's right 17 so so that was the the highest charting single and um and it was the least likely one to to, to get a big success so i, I well, don't know well it probably goes back to what you said too in a previous episode that people were looking for the crossing part two and i I would imagine mm -hmm. that the the majority of casual fans probably wanted that they 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 saw oh, a new big country's coming out let's get it and they were disappointed probably many people were disappointed because i go back to what stewart said in that quote from uh, country club where he said only a few people like what we do and he wasn't going <laughs> to cater to to these people he wasn't going to to try to release the crossing part two that was of, of no interest to him and so for these people who were expecting that or wanting that to be mm -hmm. hit with to be hit with this hard bastard <laughs> of a song and album I'm sure a lot of them just thought wow this isn't what I wanted from big country uh, so. absolutely I think that was definitely the case but uh even so there are songs you could pick from Steeltown that would give a little bit more of a crossing association so if chance was a hit single just a shadow could be a hit single it's not too different. It's recognizable as the same band. It has a melodic hook. And uh, yeah. obviously it was a single, but not only, uh, not before 1985, when the Fizzle had died and they didn't have a couple of successful singles ahead of it. So maybe that was enough. I don't know. And also right. a song like Rain Dance harkens a bit more musically, at least back to uh, The Crossing than more of the other songs. I don't know if that would have made it the perfect single, but uh, East of Eden, I think, would be low on my list of candidates. Yeah. I, I just don't think there are any really strong singles on this album. There, there are some that are better choices than others, clearly, but there's just nothing on this album that I think screams <laughs> successful single. And that's fine by me, but unfortunately, the, the, um, the bands have to make a living <laughs> on the money that they make from record sales especially back then anyway it's not that way today but um yeah I'm, I'm not sure i agree if you're implying that it didn't matter because all of them would have failed anyway i think some of them would have done 
a lot better than this as the first single of Steel Town. They probably would have. Yeah, that's that's probably fair. Yeah, but I, I, you know, this is hindsight because we know it didn't do well. Even you know, a song like With Roses on, we said that would have been a better single. That was the next one. It did worse. So how <laughs> how important was it to come out with a strong one out the gate? Was, Bec- yeah, because you see yeah. the same thing for. Uh, for the seer you can say a lot of things about the seer but they came out with a big success out the gate so none of the others were as successful but i'm sure they got a little bit of pull from look away yeah so uh it it would be yeah it would be interesting to see what what it would have done if they would have released where the rose is sown or just a shadow first and and seeing how that would have done i don't i don't think that either of them would have failed necessarily i just think that none of them would have inevitably captured the public's imagination like the like the stuff from the crossing did it just it just wouldn't have happened yeah and uh, as good as we think the video to east of eden is do you think that did him any favors <laughs> no <laughs> yeah definitely not i was reading that in the uh, in the book as well the alan glenn book and it was, it was mentioning about uh how that just didn't fit on mtv <laughs> at the time and we talked about that when we talked about the videos it just uh and yet it's a, it's a gorgeous beautiful video it stands the test of time oh and yeah that's what you got to always come down to with this stuff i, I mean it, it's hard obviously people need to make a living with what they do and and but there's also something to be said for just a complete freedom of artistic expression and and, and critics and and Absolutely. the public be damned you know and and that's yeah. the one thing that i respect about all of this is that I can look at so many "quote unquote" successful videos from the '80s and and immediately think that's from its that's from its time. It's from the year it was released. It means nothing today. Definitely. Look at, look at East of Eden. It still blows you away. I just wish perhaps it hadn't been the first video. <laughs> yeah. it, it would have been great to, to have it like a third because then it is more like a novelty. It's not like the comeback of Big Country. So I think maybe it's just the timing. Maybe East of Eden would have been a great third single or. Whatever. What What do yeah, I know? I, I'm not going to pretend like I understand the singles market. I was definitely not part of that big thing. I, I enjoyed the album. But, uh, okay, how do you rank East of Eden? Well, East of Eden is my number 10. Um, it's my number 10 song. It's, yeah. it's probably the one that I have... Uh, that I will be more likely to skip. But yet there are times that I'll listen to it and I will just be totally enthralled by it. So... And I actually really like the chorus. I, I, I tend to really sing that chorus a lot when I'm listening to it. But uh, for me, the main problem is what's going on behind the chorus. There's like a constant lead playing going on. And like I said before, I wish maybe the music had been structured a little differently. But uh, it, mm. it's number 10. It's a, <laughs> the strongest number 10 in all of the big country catalogs for me. I'll just make you over. It's mine. It's my number 10, too. <laughs> okay, good. And what about, um, we, we started this on Flame of the West, so what are your favorite lines from this song? It's probably the one that everybody will pick, and it's, it feels kind of cliched to go with the who knows where all our days go, that, that entire stanza. So yeah. I, I will definitely pick those, because they those lyrics stand alone, and the, the, the band was sufficiently proud of those words that they put them on the screen for 30 seconds during the East of Eden video, which is yeah. quite a long time to keep something up there, but it's uh, it really uh, it hits the mark. But just because those that that selection is probably so obvious that I just want to mention as a second sort of runner-up. Uh, better I, not be mine. <laughs> I always just it, it struck me with the, I looked west in search of freedom and I saw slavery, and then I looked okay, east in search of answer and I saw misery. That was just 
it just encapsulates the feeling of where where can I go and yeah. uh, that um, that always uh, hit me a bit too yeah, that's great and yeah you can't go wrong you could choose any of these lyrics I, th I think I, I would go with those the, the most common ones here too but for me it's a sentiment expressed there that I've heard before you know where do all our days go he says it very poetically and beautifully here but it's a sentiment I've heard before so I'm gonna pick the lines that I've already referenced I watch the way the sun sets until the nights inside you that that line gives me chills every time I say it and think about it because it's so mm. it's so it's so freaking powerful and dark and uh, a couple other lines here too that I didn't mention just I think that are indicative of the song a line like uh, out here in the east of Eden I let salvation be and at the end out here in the east of Eden I let my conscience be and it, it's it's very reflective on the, it really reflects back on someone who's just kind of trying to forget about quote unquote doing the right thing or whatever and is just trying to get by however they can exactly because slavery is mentioned and uh, it's probably something that everybody would want to do something about or help with but if you're stuck somewhere you really have no option and if you raise your voice then you'll be beaten down and uh, that's uh, it, it's hope and despair Yep. Glorious. Okay, that's going to have to do it for episode 39. We've already gone longer than we normally would, and we only got through two songs on Steel Town. So I think that attests to the, to the fact that uh, both Svein and myself really weren't prepared for the, the depth of emotion, I guess, that, that talking about some of these songs would bring up. So hopefully we'll move a little bit quicker in the next couple of episodes, but we're going to take our time. We're going to do it right, at least right by our standards. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. So in the meantime, find us on Facebook. Just search for The Great Divide Podcast. Find us on Twitter, at Big Country Pod. That's where you can find us on Twitter. Please follow us there. Um, I need to get a little bit more active in, in posting updates through Twitter, and I will do that. And you can always email us, too. Uh, big country podcast at gmail.com so thanks so much for listening to this first installment of our steel town deep dive i guess you could say and we will be back for part two and who knows how many parts this will lead to but part two is coming soon so thanks thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon I'm literally racked by chills right now. <laughs>